0: Welcome, listeners, to the QBS Express, the ECC Kansas podcast series. I'm your host, Scott Heitner. We are recording today from the beautiful State House in Topeka, Kansas, and uh, I am honored to have as my guest today the 48th governor of the state of Kansas, Governor Laura Kelly. Governor, thanks so much for making time to join us.
1: It's great to be here, Scott. Yeah,
0: we've been been looking forward to this for a long time. Your team's been really good to work with and setting this up. Thanks for all your help. You're welcome. Well, our goal today is uh, is not really politics or policy. We want to help all our listeners uh, get to know more about you, you know, the person behind the governor's desk. And uh, let's start all the way back in the beginning. I've, I've got... A little bit of familiarity from working with you over the years and compound that with a little bit of Wikipedia research I've got just enough to be dangerous maybe but you were originally born in New York City
1: I was I was born in Queens
0: in Queens Mm -hmm. mm-hmm
1: and uh, born into a military family Mm -hmm. so I think I was all of three months old the first time I moved uh, we moved down to Virginia Uh, my dad was a career army officer uh, and uh, we just continued uh, moving after that.
0: What did your dad do in the military?
1: Uh, he was in armor mm-hmm. division uh, early on, and then went into intelligence.
0: Ah, what uh, you oversee some too?
1: Yep, I actually uh, lived in Japan uh, when I was about two to four. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first language was actually Japanese. You're kidding! Mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time with a Japanese woman there, and uh the first language I learned, unfortunately. I don't remember any of it now, right. but, um, yeah, it was, it was quite an experience.
0: Does anybody have a recording out there somewhere of five-year-old Governor Kelly speaking Japanese? Well, this was a long time ago, so <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have those personal recording devices at that time. Interesting. Well, your dad, uh, I don't want to, you know, speculate about the time frame, but in the armor division there could have been some, deployments there that would have been fairly tense along the way, depending on where he was sent.
1: Well, he was both a World War II veteran Mm -hmm. and a Korean War veteran. Wow! So he had those. And then later, uh, when I was actually going into eighth grade, he was deployed to Korea. At that time, people either went to Korea or they went to Vietnam. Uh, My dad went to uh, Korea, and that was when he was doing intelligence.
0: Yeah. What was it like moving a lot as a child? Is that a character builder or a, a hurdle you have to clear?
1: Well, you know, it's I actually knew nothing else. So uh, for me, it was just the way of life. Mm-hmm. Um, I would not want to have been my mother at the time, oh, yeah. uh, you know, since it was often the mother uh, who was left to make all the arrangements, all the logistics of getting uh, her kids from here to Germany, here to Japan, here to California. So I think it was really hard on uh, my parents, uh, but for me as a kid, it was great. You know, it, in the military at that time it was often you'd go from one post to another, uh, and it could be across the world, but you might end up being with some of the same kids you had just been with, you know, two assignments ago. So that part was sort of fun. I, I enjoyed the, the different cultures that I was able to get involved with, um, and, you know, it's not something I wanted to do as a parent, and right. so I settled down in Kansas uh, for good, uh, but as a kid, I actually enjoyed it.
0: Did it go all the way through your childhood, through age 18, or at some point um, before that, did he retire, or did you get a permanent landing spot?
1: We ended up back in New York mm-hmm. um, after my father came back from Korea. He could, You could ask at that point for a special assignment, and his parents were getting older, so he has asked to be assigned to New York. So we were at Fort Wadsworth on Staten Island, uh, and it was there that uh, my travels as a military brat ended. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't end as an adult. Uh, <laughs> it was sort of in my blood. So
0: Yeah, I've, I noticed that in doing the background. It's amazing. Even after being around you for so many years, there is a lot I did not know about your background and all the travel, uh, wandering soul. Well, before we get off of the childhood, what, uh, what occupied your time as a kid? What were your hobbies? What were your passions?
1: Well, Scott, I was a sports nut, mm-hmm. um, huge New York Yankee fan, uh, oh. and uh, <laughs> my, my life stream was actually to replace Mickey Mantle in Center Field. <laughs> um, I was very disappointed when I found out that girls couldn't do that, so instead, I just uh, played baseball with the guys, uh, and um, when I got into junior high, I took up uh, tennis um, in high school, I played basketball. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was, it was primarily sports, uh, was what I liked to do, uh, the most.
0: Uh, I have to tell you a short sidebar. So growing up a Royals fan, uh, in the time period I did, you almost by default become a bit of a Yankee hater. You know, those were some (laughs) intense rivalries, but that notwithstanding, even though I, I, grew up looking at them as the, the evil empire, when the decision was made to tear down old Yankee stadium base, baseball is my passion. I just love mm-hmm. the game of baseball. And when I heard that they were going to build a new stadium, I went out, flew out to New York just to go to a game at old Yankee stadium to see the old monument park and all that, uh, even if you don't like the Yankees you cannot be crazy about the history out there it,
1: it's a very it was a very magical place and getting there was half the fun cuz you'd yeah. ride the subway with all the Yankee fans and yeah. uh, so it was it was great but you know my very first royals game I went to, I was living in Denver, and I had a friend there who was good friends with Goose Gossage.
0: Oh, he was yeah. One of the
1: pitchers for the Yankees. Yeah. And he got tickets to the Royals game when the Yankees were going to be here in Kansas City. And so that was my very, very first Royals game.
0: Did you get to meet Goose?
1: Yes, I did. I got to hang out with Goose, no actually. No kidding. Yep. In fact, I've got a baseball signed by the Yankees. Yeah. The, uh, the that, big, that bushy Goose mustache. gave me that. Yeah. Yep.
0: yep. Oh, that's awesome. What kind of guy was Goose?
1: Wild and crazy. <laughs> but an excellent relief pitcher.
0: That he was. Yeah. That he was. Wasn't so, he the guy on the mound when Brett hit the famous home run in the playoff game?
1: I, You know, I don't remember. Yeah. Maybe I'm blocking that one out. Yeah. What an all- <laughs>
0: <laughs> Well, that's okay. You've made up for it with several positive memories since, uh, including this year. The Yankees are killing it again this year.
1: Yeah, well, you know, though, Scott, my loyalties have shifted somewhat. Uh, uh, though I'm, I'm a lifelong Yankee fan, uh, I would not root against the Orioles.
0: That's uh, wonderful to hear. We, Lord knows we can use all the supporters we can get. Times have gone lean again. <laughs> well, we better get back on track. Um, so through your childhood, sports junkie as a kid, Military family, a lot of moving. So finally, high school ends, and your first stop was you got a bachelor's in psychology at Bradley. Mm-hmm. What was the what was in play to take you from New York to Bradley?
1: So am I supposed to be completely honest here? Well, I'll
0: leave that to, to the <laughs> uh, to your discretion, <laughs> okay. Governor. But I think yes, absolutely. Okay,
1: so I was a um, you know things were very very different back when I was in high school. You know, you didn't do all of these college tours and prep for. Uh, going away to school. you know. Then it was just you looked it up in a catalog and you applied and if you got in, you went. Uh, so I actually applied to some other places. I really very much wanted to go to the College of William and Mary mm-hmm. in Williamsburg, Virginia. And For some reason, I I was obsessed with the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. I didn't get into either one of those. It was getting late in my senior year, and I thought, well, my favorite place uh, as I was growing up was was the four years I spent in Michigan. Uh, My dad had been assigned to the National Guard there, so we actually lived with civilians for the very first time uh, in my life, and um, lived first in Detroit and then in a suburb uh and and i just remembered that as as my my uh really highlight of my childhood so I started looking through the college catalogs, thinking, I'm going to go back to the Midwest. And Bradley uh, was one of the first schools I came up with. So it's a a B school. I was going to say early in the alphabet. (laughs) So there we go. I applied, and I got in, and I went. That's awesome. And I can tell you that, you know, when you went to school at that point, um, you flew into O'Hare in Chicago, Mm -hmm. and then you took uh, Ozark Airlines down to Peoria. Where it was, and I I was sitting next to a young woman from New York. I was living outside D.C. at the time, and um, we're sitting there flying in. She hadn't been to the campus either. We're flying in, and we're going over those cornfields, and both of us being East Coast kids are going, what have we done? (laughs) 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 But got there and loved it. Um, I I didn't think I would stay, but I ended up staying all four years because I had a great experience. It was a good school. Uh, but even more so, um, there was a reason I wanted to come back to the Midwest. I felt very comfortable.
0: That's awesome. And was there an intentional path to majoring in psychology, or was it a, sort of a lack of better options? It's not at the front of the alphabet. So. Yeah,
1: No, it's <laughs> not. And actually, I went into school, uh, into Bradley as a math major. Ah. and um, But I had already, that summer before my freshman year, I had worked at a camp in New York, and... Um, for kids from the city. Uh, this was sort of a, a respite from the city uh, run by the Fresh Air Fund and I've really really enjoyed it. You know it was a tough time for kids Martin Luther King, uh, you know, Bobby Kennedy, uh, all of those, John Kennedy had been killed. It was a tough time in the cities uh, so it was the kids were stressed to say the least um, but and I just found overwhelming satisfaction in being able to work with those kids, and um, so after a few months as a math major, I decided I'd change and, and go towards
0: psychology. That's a great story. Most most people don't have something that compelling that drove them to what they majored in. Uh, I want to. I was going to ask this question later, but since you just brought those up, let's go ahead and put it in now. I was going to ask you what some of the more impactful. American moments were that you remembered from your childhood and early adulthood, and you just mentioned obviously three of them Um, Anything else that really sticks in your head?
1: Well, you know, it's it's interesting that uh, The answer is basically no Mm -hmm. and part of that is because I lived in the military I lived overseas for so much of my early childhood. Yeah, we didn't have television. We didn't have radio uh, so I was, in some ways, a little disconnected uh-huh. uh, with the United States as I was growing up. And uh, so th- the first really um, iconic moment that I can remember uh, was the assassination of John Kennedy.
0: Wow. When were you here in America? I, was I, I was.
1: I was living in New York at the time. Um, in fact, I remember very clearly I was in Latin class. Uh, I went to a Catholic high school. On Staten Island, and um, Sister Charlotte came over the intercom and announced uh, that um, the president had been killed. Wow!
0: They didn't even deliver the news to the teacher to deliver it. Just literally came. It came in over, over the intercom. Yep. Holy cow! Well, I bet that is seared into your memory. It is. Yeah. Well, we'll come back to the education glide path here. So, four years at Bradley, get mm-hmm. a psychology degree. Uh, was there a break in the educational continuum before you went on to Indiana, or did you go straight?
1: No, there was there was a one year break. Okay. Uh, and actually, as I was finishing up my degree at uh, Bradley, mm-hmm. I started working at a minimum security facility for boys uh, in very rural uh, Illinois. Had a lot of kids there from Chicago, from the gangs. We had kids from the rural areas. Uh, so it was another opportunity for me to to work with kids uh, who had some serious issues. Um, th- that job ended pretty quickly um, due to just political circumstances within the state. Uh, so I sort of packed up my stuff and I went down to Florida, uh, around Tampa, and uh, ended up getting a job at an all-year-round camp uh, for emotionally disturbed girls, mm-hmm. abused and neglected primarily. And so I I spent nearly a year there. Uh, living in the woods 24-7, 365, uh, (laughs) with 10 10 disturbed uh, kids. Um, Decided from that that I really liked, I I had thought that I might end up being a social worker, um, but I, I, val- I came to value the idea of activity with kids. You know, I, I thought it was a better modality to use in working with kids rather than just sit, let's sit down, talk about it. Let's do stuff, and through uh, you know, through activity, you can be able to to reach those kids. And so that's when I decided to go to Indiana University, where they had probably one of the strongest. Uh, therapeutic recreation programs in the country.
0: And you just filled in all the dots when I read the bio and that you went into, or got your master's in therapeutic recreation. I wondered how do you get from psychology to that, but there you have it. Yeah. So you went there, got your master's at Indiana, and went there because Mm -hmm. it was one of the better schools to go to.
1: It, well, it was a pretty fledgling field at the time, and so yes, uh, one of the top faculty members in the country was there, mm-hmm. and so I wanted to study under her, mm-hmm. and uh, and did.
0: Yeah, so what uh, we'll shift into the professional glide path now, or past the education, uh, first job, first pit stop after your masters at Indiana.
1: I. Um, I went to New York, back to New York uh, and because I'd been offered a job uh, as a therapeutic recreation specialist at a state psychiatric facility for children. Uh, Back in those days, um, New York had established seven state-of-the-art psychiatric facilities for children uh, based on something called the Willowbrook Consent Degree, which said that they had to stop warehousing Mm -hmm. uh, people in institutions, and so New York's response was to build these at the time. Um, very sophisticated facilities and I was just fortunate to um, be able to get a job uh, there. Started out as a line therapist working directly with the kids, quickly moved up into supervisory and then administrative roles.
0: Is this it may not be related at all but you talk about it was sort of a fledgling field at the time. Therapeutic recreation really has some common threads with other fields that are pretty active today, like orientation and mobility therapists and and things like that. Um, what is the what's the scope, I guess, of folks that uh, you work with in that field? Is it strictly behavioral, or is it in some cases um, folks with physical?
1: Covers the gamut. Everything. You know, there's there's no special population that. Mm-hmm. People with a therapeutic recreation degree don't work. You'll often find them in nursing facilities, mm-hmm. uh, working with uh, geriatric populations. Uh, you now find them in hospitals. Um, they're sometimes called play therapists that die, um, and so they'll be going into hospital rooms, working with kids to prep them for surgery and whatnot to, ma- to make it less uh, traumatic.
0: Yeah. Well, what uh, what, after New York, give us the rundown of Um, where I, at least on a personal level, the first time I've caught up with you after that was when you were the executive director at the Parks and Rec Association, which we'll talk more about a little later. But fill in the gaps between New York and and that job here in Kansas.
1: Well, I stayed in New York uh, for seven years and then uh, decided that I really didn't want to live in New York anymore. And so I sold my car, sold my condo, quit my job and moved to Denver. Uh, I figured I'd make life work there. And uh and I did. Mm-hmm. Uh I thought I wanted to get out of human services, so my brother in law owned a temporary service agency out there and Larry put me in a variety of different settings. I worked in banking, I worked in retail. Uh and it was when I was sitting uh at a corporate headquarters and I was just filling in for the receptionist at the time, and I started to imagine myself, you know, settling in here, working uh in a corporation I thought, well, what position would I want? And I thought, I'd want to be vice president of marketing. But then I thought, but I don't really care about the product. And so it was at that point I realized I needed to go back into human services. And I was just very fortunate that uh, National Jewish Hospital for Respiratory and Immune Disease was looking for a director of recreation therapy and physical education at the time. So I I applied in the typical New York fashion. I waited about seven days after the job posting was in the paper, because in New York you don't want your resume coming in that Monday. Uh, it's too many of them. Right. So I waited. I almost waited too long. They had really selected someone. But when my resume finally did come in to the human resources office, the woman who reviewed it happened to have graduated from the same high school I did in Arlington, Virginia. And she was just curious uh she had to meet me so i went in uh interviewed got the job and so i spent then another seven years as director of uh, recreation therapy and physical education and was at that in Denver, Jewish. also it was in denver yeah i work with there we uh the patients were primarily um severe respiratory problems a lot of asthma a lot of chronic mm-hmm. pulmonary dis- disorders um but in the children's side, those kids also had secondary diagnosis of some sort of emotional disturbance. So I was back a little bit in my environment.
0: Yeah, and what uh, what came after that?
1: Well, it was in it was in Denver uh, when I was working at National Jewish that I met my husband, mm-hmm. uh, Doctor Ted. Doctor Ted, <coughs> I um, I knew him. Um, actually, he he was a swimmer and. I had control of the swimming pool, and he wanted to...
0: <laughs> <coughs> he wanted you, had, you had leverage.
1: <coughs> he wanted increased swim staff swim hours. So I had a meeting in the grand rounds where they do all the medical review stuff, and, and I invited all the people who were interested in swimming uh, from the staff to come on in and we figure out how we might be able to make this work. Well, they had been swimming for free. Uh, and when it was all said and done, they walked out. They had more swim time, but now they're paying for it uh, because I had to have my staff you know, sit there on their lunch hour or early or after work, uh, and so I needed to pay them. <laughs> and so they walked out with with what they wanted. But
0: so you met your husband through the process of was, hard negotiations. He was impressed, at <laughs> the least. So uh,
1: yeah, I had I had sort of a. Uh, a, a rule not to ever date anybody in my work environment but uh, after about two and a half years of, mm-hmm. of not dating Ted I thought mm, this is insane so yeah we did and seven months later we were married
0: I'll be darned and was it a career change for one or the other or both of you that led you out of Denver at some point
1: Ted was an academic there I mean he saw patients but he was also doing a lot of research and he really wanted to be a clinician um, Denver is a hub of pulmonary training, though, and so there were uh, there was a glut of pulmonologists in the area, and so we looked around for other places, and um, he got an offer in Salina, Kansas, and, and we thought about it and thought about, you know, we're only going to move one more time. You know, you know I was not going to you know, be my mother. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, we decided that we would, uh, we would choose Kansas to be our home. That this would be where we would come, where we would make a life and where we'd raise our kids.
0: Had you been here before to Kansas for any length of time?
1: You know, as everybody else had driven through it uh-huh. uh, on my way to the mountains in Colorado, but yeah. no, I really hadn't yeah. uh, spent much time here. But I knew a fair number of Kansans. There were there are a fair number of Kansans in Denver.
0: They are our best ambassadors.
1: Exactly, yeah. and so I really liked a lot of Kansans, and yeah. I thought this could work. But it was also because of my time in Michigan, you know, that I knew I was comfortable in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And so um, I looked forward, actually, to, to not only relocating here, but to raising my family here. Yeah. Uh, I, I really liked, you know, what I saw in Midwest kids, no matter where I was.
0: As a lifelong Kansan, it always just makes me proud to hear a story like that of somebody that is here by choice, you know, not born here, but gets a little exposure either to the place or to the people or both. Makes a decision. This is where they're going to land because folks that haven't been here or don't know the people, uh, they don't know what they're missing. No, they don't. You know, they really don't.
1: And I mean, I I think about it particularly as a young parent. um, You know, which is a hard time in life anyway.
0: Mm -hmm. How how old were your girls when you came to Kansas, or were they?
1: uh, One was. One Mm -hmm. was not. Um, Kathleen was 15 months uh, when we crossed the border in 1986. And then Molly was born uh, here in Topeka um, two and a half years later.
0: Mm-hmm. So. so you're in Salina. Um, I'm still winding my way eventually towards your parks and rec time, which I want to talk more about. What uh, what's the rest of the thread?
1: Well, that's that's actually where I ended up becoming the first executive director for the Kansas Recreation and Park Association. Okay. One of the attractions in Salina to me was the presence of Don Jolly, who was Director of Parks and Recreation in Salina. Don was also very active in the National Recreation and Park Association, and I was too, uh, in the National Therapeutic Recreation Society branch of that. So I knew of Don. I didn't know him particularly well, but I knew of him. Mm -hmm. And so when I got to Salina, uh, I instantly met with him, and it turned out that Uh, KRPA, Kansas Recreation and Park Association, was going to hire its first ever executive director. It had always been just a volunteer membership organization. And they were going to house the position in Salina because Don had some space at the memorial building that he could set aside for the association office. Uh, So, Again, uh, you know, timing was wonderful. Yeah. They, what, they, what year was that? That was 1986, 1986. August of 1986 is when I took the job. So, um, you know, I interviewed for that with the board and uh, ended up getting the job. They had nothing. Uh, you know, I had to go buy their first pencil. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so we started from ground up. The only thing I had was a sheet of notebook paper with a list of the members. Um, wow. So,
0: well, let's talk for just a minute, and it won't be too long because we'll bore our listeners into a coma. It uh, so will only be interesting to people that have lived in the association management world. But as you know, we manage several professional and trade associations over at our shop. Uh, it is it is a unique niche industry that is. It's it's easy to understand if you're in it. It's hard to explain to people outside of it what you do when you say I'm in association management. I run an association.
1: It is, and you know, I I particularly ran a specific uh, association with for a specific group of professionals, and so it was delightful for me. You know, if. I could no longer practice my, my old field of recreation therapy and physical education to be able to represent them and mm-hmm. to work on their behalf, do a lot of professional development and training, setting up you know all sorts of interesting uh, programs for them to learn and to grow. Uh, To be actively engaged in the profession, you know, in the legislature, you know, pushing forward uh, policy issues, Mm -hmm. uh, budgetary issues that they needed. Uh, So I did that here in Topeka, but I also went back to D.C. and lobbied uh, to get land and water conservation funding and other kinds of things that really have helped our communities build their trail systems, uh, their swimming pools, you know, all sorts of things that I think make... Uh, our communities better places to live. So that was that was really fun to do. And it's as you know, you know, association management is a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. And so it's never boring. You know, if if you tired of meeting planning at this moment, okay, let's go do some policy stuff. So that's what I really enjoyed about it. It was it was diverse. It also though allowed me to get to know this state in a way that would not have been possible if I'd had a routine nine to five job. Uh, I traveled all over the state you know by the time I finished 18 years later I had been in just about every little community all over uh, the four corners of Kansas uh, getting to know the state the the geography uh, and the people.
0: It one of the other things about association management that I like I, I completely agree with your observation that it's never boring you know Uh, One day you're focusing on membership growth. One day it's, you know, the next continuing education. Next day it's advocacy. The other thing, and last thing I'll say about it, but uh, it is awesome to be in a job where you work for people, your volunteer board of directors, who are so passionate about your success that they are volunteering extra time above and beyond their full-time careers and their families when you work for people that are that committed to something it's awesome
1: yeah it, it really is and yeah. that's when i would go into the communities i would go in at the invitation of the director of parks and recreation someplace and there were times when he or she would not be available because they were out answering a fire call you know i just found these to be you know some of the most salt of the earth best folks on earth
0: yeah it's a it's a cool part of it and You know, you can't ask for anybody that is more excited for you in your professional victories than these people because they're paying money out of their pocket to belong to this association and donating their their free time.
1: So, Scott, did you come to the inauguration, the actual swearing-in? I did. Okay. Do you remember the cheering section? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Those were my guys from Parks and Recreation.
0: <laughs> is that true? That is true. Oh, that's awesome. That
1: is, they, they just got a bus or something and, and came here yeah. that freezing day in January. <laughs> and they were up there and they were hooting and hollering.
0: <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah, and you know what? I'm not surprised because you do develop those types of relationships in the association management. Well, I could talk about that for a long time, but for our listeners that aren't in association management, I'll I'll move on. And I want to make sure in the time we've got left, uh, you know, we've really done everything but the political side of your career. But I think that takes us to this because you were the exec, I think, for Recreation and Parks when you made the decision to run for the Senate.
1: This is true. Very good. And this and, is true. Uh,
0: for our listeners, a lot of you may know, but Governor Kelly represented the 18th Senate District from, I believe, 2005 to 2019. If I have my
1: that would be numbers great.
0: right, I believe you won four elections. I did in that district. Um, how, uh, what drove the decision to run for elected office?
1: Well, uh, when I moved to Topeka, you know, we were in Salina for about 15, 18 months. And then we moved over here. The association was delighted to move the headquarters into the capital city. And my husband had got an unsolicited offer with uh, a medical group here. So we, we made the decision to come. And uh, we happened to move into Potwin, bought a house in Potwin. And Potwin is was, was an incredibly political neighborhood, particularly back then. You know, I, there were three former state reps who lived in the neighborhood. Secretary of State lived in the neighborhood. Across the street, though, at the time, was Kathleen Sebelius, who was my state rep then. Uh, As it would have, we ended up buying the house right next door to hers. And so she and I became friends, raised our kids together and um, she actually asked me when she was going to leave the state house to run for insurance commissioner she asked me if i would run for her house seat and i said no uh, you know being a legislator is not a family-friendly job my husband's hours are not particularly flexible and so it really was my job to be the one who could uh, you know get the kids where they needed to go so I, I just said no at that time couldn't do it ten years later My state senator, who had lived around the corner from me, had been defeated, and she was defeated by a guy who really was not representing the district that I knew, uh, voting against public education, voting against state employees, uh, all sorts of things. And so uh, at that point, I decided that I would run for the state senate and try to take that seat back. Um, And... Uh, It worked. You know, I I didn't win by much. (laughs) In fact, I won by a grand total of 100 votes. Uh, I had a recount and all of those kinds of things. I'd forgotten that. Oh, yeah. Oh, I woke up uh, Wednesday morning after election night. I was up 39 votes. Went out to Wabunzi County, uh, came back uh, that Friday, up eight votes. Oh, my. And then back in for uh, provisional counts on Monday and ended up 100 votes in the recount. Yeah. Validated that. I so. had forgotten, mm-hmm. if I
0: ever knew that, I had forgotten all about it. Oh, yeah. Wow. I'm sure you haven't. <laughs> I have not. I have
1: not. And I've run like the devil ever since. <laughs>
0: There is nothing like a close race to motivate you to work harder on the next one. That's the truth. This is true. You
1: you know, nothing is guaranteed.
0: Yeah. Well, in your time in the Senate, you served uh, as the assistant majority leader. You served as the minority whip. Mm -hmm. And honestly, the most time, my most familiarity with you, or what I think of you mostly in your time as a senator, was um, as the ranking minority member of Ways and Means, uh, that was a pretty intense job. Any leadership spot on that committee is a pretty intense job. What uh, What are your favorite memories of your time in the Senate? Not necessarily a policy, uh, but something about the culture, or something about the nature of how business is done, or a collection of colleagues. What's your What are a couple of your favorite memories?
1: My favorite time in the Senate, um, at least during the first six years, I you know the. After the the moderates were all taken out in 2012, went through a little bit of a dark time. But uh, prior to that and after that, uh, my favorite time was always conference committee, Ways and Means and Appropriations, uh, and the negotiating uh, that went on. um, And working with my colleagues, you know the, the chair and the vice chair of the committee and really coming up with the packages that we were going to offer to the House and then responding to their bids. That was my favorite thing to do.
0: Yeah. Anybody that uh, wants to see true negotiation truly ought to come up here. And again, of course, you don't see the full depth of the negotiation when you attend the conference committee, but uh, it's pretty intense.
1: It, it's intense, um, and it's actually exhilarating. <clears throat>
0: Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So 14 years in mm-hmm. the Kansas Senate, what made or what drove the decision? Because I'm sure it couldn't have been an easy one to run for governor. I mean, that's a that's a very, very, very large commitment.
1: Uh, well, it is. Yeah. And um, I had never uh, planned to, wanted to run for governor. Uh, I had been asked Uh, in previous years and always just said no. Um, But this last time around, um, I was very concerned that if I didn't do it, uh, we would end up with um, Chris Kobach as our governor. And quite honestly, I just couldn't let that happen. And I felt like I was probably (laughs) the only uh, Democrat who could make sure that that did not happen. And so um, I agreed to do it. I mean, I came in late, as you well know. There was a whole lot of arm twisting and yeah. whatnot that, that went on before. But it, it, it really was when I realized that uh, Kansas had been so good to me and to my kids, my, my husband, that I owed it. I owed it to the state to try to make sure that didn't happen.
0: Was running for statewide office the most time-intensive commitment you've ever made? It appears that way from the outside. It appears as if every moment of your day, seven days a week, during a campaign for statewide office, particularly, is spoken for and scripted. It seems unforgiving.
1: Well, you got that right. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is pretty much. I mean, uh, but I knew. I mean, even my runs for state senate, um, you know, I. I was a Democrat running in a very conservative district. Uh, and so it was really important for me to get out and about and, and um, to get to see the people and let the people get to know me, um, really respond to their questions, concerns that they might have about electing someone like me. And so I was used to that and I knew that it would be that way magnified by a number of months. but. Um, so yes, it, it it is 24 seven, you know, there's no letting up, um, as, as there shouldn't be, you know, this is an important job and you ought to be willing to do the work to get
0: it. What's the biggest difference between being a Senator and being governor? And again, I'm thinking less about your policy responsibilities, like drafting a budget. I mean, more in just the day to day life, the culture of it.
1: Well, for one thing, it's it's year round, Mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't go away. There is no uh, adjournment (laughs) (laughs) in May. Uh, You can, you know, flit off uh, and enjoy some of the summer. So that's part of it, you know, that this is this is every day, all day. Uh, And clearly, I'm in a totally different role. You know, this is I'm not a legislator anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, I am an administrator. I'm the CEO of the state, so uh, that the whole management of that um, and having a staff, you know, when you're a state senator, you, you don't have any staff, you know, you're it. And uh, other than the session secretary, um, you know, from January to May. So, you know, having a staff, having to build a staff uh, and then working through the staff to, to accomplish things uh, is a huge difference.
0: Yeah. I'm sure some of our listeners would want to know there have to be I'm sure there are some thankless things that go along with being governor that our listeners wouldn't know about. But there's got to be a couple of cool things, too, that, you know, the public doesn't see or doesn't get reported in the press. What are a couple of fun things either that you get exposed to or that you have an opportunity to do or maybe groups that you have an opportunity to be a part of or, or be in front of? that comes as part of being governor that have been part of the fun?
1: Well, you know, the most fun and sort of most surprising uh, part of this is how important my role is to young people in the state of Kansas. And by young people, I mean teenagers, but I also mean little kids. Uh, and you know, just their reaction to me, and particularly little girls, um, you know, to, to have a role model to see something they can be uh, is is uh, that really is fun for me to do and and sort of unexpected. I don't think I ever saw myself uh, as particularly a role model at all, but it's very clear now from the reaction that I get that I am. Yes, uh, and I take it pretty resp- pretty seriously. No,
0: I think one of the opportunities and burdens, probably depending on how you look at it and depending on the day, is in this position you are a role model whether you want to be or not and what you do with it will impact folks regardless
1: and i i'm always cognizant of that
0: yeah uh speaking of that i'm gonna one down uh uh, off topic comment but i meant to bring it up earlier when we were talking about the yankees we've talked a little bit about um your work with women and young women and you just mentioned now your impact on young people and particularly on young girls. uh, I have, you're going to wonder where this is going, but there is a point. I have the MLB app on my phone because I'm such a baseball junkie, and you can get the audio broadcast of every game. And you can choose which team's uh, announcing squad you want to listen to. And so I end up listening to more Yankees baseball than you might think an average person (laughs) should and one of their announcers, Susan, I can't think of her last name, but I can hear her voice in my head. The Yankees were one of the very first teams in baseball to bring a woman onto the broadcasting team.
1: Well, more power to them. More, more power to them. I think they might be one of the first teams to have a female bat girl too.
0: Is that true? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that.
1: I think they might have been. Huh. Yep.
0: There you so. go. Well, I will... It hurts my heart just a little to give credit to the Yankees for things, but but we, we will where they deserve it. Okay. Uh, and want to ask they you. They still wouldn't uh, let me play center field. <laughs> well, I will I'm say I'm not this. sure that has to do with my gender. It I was to just, do with my skill set. just <laughs> going to say replacing Mickey Mantle is uh, not for the faint of heart. That's for sure. Uh, that's for sure. Well, let me ask you this. One more question about your time as governor here. Uh We just talked about how unrelenting the schedule is campaigning, and I can't imagine it's a lot better at governor. But having said all that, theoretically, uh, if you have some downtime as governor, what are your favorite ways uh, to fill that time? What are some of your hobbies, your favorite activities, that kind of thing?
1: Well, you know, I continue to love sports. And so I I played a lot of tennis uh, prior to becoming a state senator. Uh, when I became a state senator it was it was harder to do that just because my teams all played in the winter uh and that's when the legislature is in place so at that point I s- switched over to golf and uh so I am as bad a golfer as I was a tennis <laughs> player but uh but it is something I enjoy and so when it, when I get a, a break of a number of hours I might be found on a golf course
0: yeah very good uh I'll you can add me to the list of people that enjoy a round of golf and bring no skill to it so no judgment <laughs> here okay yeah well I want to talk a little bit uh, for our ACEC listeners uh, about some engineering-specific things for just a minute, and mostly uh, just to say, honestly, thank you for a couple of things that in your time in office, you have, I think, been a great asset to the industry uh, and taken a lot of time to understand issues maybe more deeply than than you had to even. Um, The Engineering Initiatives Act is a great, great, great piece of public policy that Kansas has passed in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tremendous amount of resources provided to the engineering colleges. Uh, We were just out in Manhattan and had a membership meeting there, heard from faculty about the impact that's had, uh, and really appreciated your leadership in that um, and your role in that. And the big one, qualifications-based selection, QBS. You know, we've had several conversations over the years and you have with some of our ACC members locally. uh, State statute says design professionals will be procured on qualifications-based selection, which is how the feds do it in 46 states and most major cities. It's, It's the way to do it. But there's always somebody that wants to tinker with it and always somebody that wants to move away from it. And it's a It's not a super simple subject to describe. It's really kind of a nuanced argument. And I want our ACEC podcast listeners to know, a lot of them that were in leadership at the time, already know what you did. But I want them to know how much time you've invested in the issue, spent with me, spent with our members to understand that and your support of that over the years. So we really appreciate that.
1: Well, you're welcome, Scott. You know, I am a firm believer uh, that... Uh, it's important to hire qualified people mm-hmm. for positions. Uh, we've seen what happens when you don't you know and so uh, I, I trust much more uh, that folks who have the training uh, will be better designers and engineers yeah. and uh, I want to make sure that that uh, our buildings stay up yeah. <laughs> and our roads stay.
0: That's wonderful. It, it, is, it is the best way to maximize the value of the taxpayer dollar that goes into those projects. And then, of course, uh, this could be its own separate podcast, but infrastructure funding in general. Um, appreciate your help and your support and your leadership there. Uh, folks will automatically leap to the transportation plans, and, and rightly so, it's been a big part of it. But through your time on Ways and Means, I know you've also been exposed and had a chance to work on everything from our, the states of vertical infrastructure. You mentioned buildings and uh, water resources and those kind of things. Uh, all of those are important to our members and we appreciate all that you've done on those too.
1: Well, again, uh, you're welcome. But um, you know, I know it's not fun uh, to spend money on infrastructure. It's not that sexy, mm-hmm. um, but it's absolutely imperative. Yeah. And and I hope that we'll be able to invest a lot more in it. You know, we do have some crumbling infrastructure uh, that needs to be reinforced uh, in a whole lot of areas in addition to, to our roads, but also our buildings. Look at all the deferred maintenance we have at our universities. So um, you know, I, I want to make that part of uh, our administration that we address those issues that are really imperative for yeah. the future of our
0: state. That's fantastic. Man. Not to I'm mention
1: what it'll do for economic development. I think it's, it's here, here. A, you know, we, we know that those kinds of infrastructure projects uh, are huge job creators and um, stimulators. So uh, we'll be working towards that for a whole host of reasons. Yeah.
0: Well, I need to head towards wrapping up here. Um, both you and your team have been very, very gracious in the time you've committed to this. Uh, it's been just delightful to have you on. We've been looking forward to this for a long time. I want to wrap up with what we call the lightning round. They're just a couple of I random. I hate these things. Do you? <laughs> <go> right ahead. <laughs> we had a, a guest on, actually it was our very first podcast, and I got to the lightning round and I said, "It's you know, it's kind of like the Rorschach the ink blot test and he said oh I fail those all the time <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was funny and I would never share mine so uh. <laughs> well hopefully these aren't too hard but again it's just a, a way for I think listeners to get a good snapshot into uh, you know Governor Kelly and who you are and what your passions are um, some of your favorite movies Casablanca mm-hmm. that's excellent Anything else you want to add, or does that stand alone on the, the it, cinema it pedestal? It sort
1: of stands alone, but, you know, I have others. I bet that, you know, most of them are so old, people wouldn't even know. I mean, <laughs> I love things like the Ten Commandments. Uh-huh. Uh, that was one. We got to leave school to go see that special. Is that
0: true? Uh-huh. That's awesome.
1: Around the world in 80 days. I mean, there's some yeah. epic, epic films uh, that are that are very old. But, yeah. um, but if I had to pick one, it would be Casablanca.
0: That's awesome. And last question of the podcast, Uh, one or more favorite quotes, something that really speaks to you or inspires you or you think um, illuminates a truth that you see on a regular basis?
1: Oh, there are several uh, that I can think of, but uh, I think John Kennedy's Ask Not. Uh, what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country uh, is how I've pretty much tried to live my life.
0: Yeah. Well, if you're going to pick one, that's not bad. Yeah. Well, Governor, I can't thank you enough for making time to be with us. It's been a lot of fun, and I know you have a tremendous amount of demands on your time, and we're, we're truly honored that you budgeted some time for us to sit down and visit, and it's been a delight. Thanks for being a part of it. Appreciate your time, Scott. Absolutely. Well, ACEC Kansas QBS Express listeners, we will talk to you again soon on the next QBS Express.